Well, this morning, before we uh, continue on in our brand new sermon series, The Ten Great Freedoms, I got two impromptu announcements for you this morning, Uh, two exciting announcements. I wasn't planning on sharing these, but uh, number one, I want to highlight, we have some of our best friends here with us this morning, one of our favorite missionary families, Matt, Deborah, Stangheli, and their kids. Would you guys, do you guys mind if I highlight, just stand up and let us just uh, praise the Lord for you guys. Great to see you this morning. Amen. So I didn't know you guys were going to be here today, but uh, what a blessing. If you don't know Matt and Deborah and their kids, uh, they're, the, they're the kids of uh, Rick and Gail Stangheli, our former senior pastor here at Lakes Free Church, and uh, serving in Norway, planting a faithful gospel teaching church in Norway. And uh, God is doing some great things there and bearing great fruit. So if you don't know them, I'd encourage you to uh, get to know them, get on their newsletter, join them in prayer, maybe financial support. Uh, man, these are some of my favorite people in the world. We love you guys, and such a blessing to have you with us this morning. So, um, Second thing I want to highlight, another impromptu announcement. Awesome, exciting stuff. Bo Backus, would you please stand up for a second here? <laughs> Bo Backus, you guys know Bo, longtime member of our church here. Bo, this past week, was serving at the FCA sports camp at Bethel University. Uh, my daughter was attending this camp, and I went and I picked up my daughter, and uh, Bo ran into me as I was picking up Addie, and Bo said, Jason, man, I just got to tell you, I'm so excited what God did this week. Uh, he had a huddle of how many kids? Eight, ten kids? Eight kids. Every single one of them this week put their trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord. Isn't that awesome? Praise God. Good work, buddy. So that's my bad. I should have had a big bouquet of roses up here this morning. But uh, we're thankful, Bo, for your faithfulness and serving the Lord there and uh, thankful for what God did in the lives of those uh, students who were part of that camp. Well, this morning we're going to continue on in our new sermon series this summer, The Ten Great Freedoms. If, if you missed last week, I'd encourage you to go back because last week what we did is we basically set the context for the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments, if you recall, were given by God to the people of Israel in the, in the wilderness at Mount Sinai. God descended upon the mountain. We talked about God and his awesome terrifying holiness. We talked about all the the warnings and restrictions and the barriers that God put up, right, to guard the people because God's holiness is serious business. We cannot come into the presence of God in his holiness in, in our sin. And so God wanted to convey that very clearly. But God also conveyed very clearly that he was a gracious God. He reminds the Israelites how he had led them out of slavery in Egypt, how he had bore them up on eagles' wings, how he had brought them through the wilderness. And now he had brought them to Sinai to reveal to them his law, his moral will. And we talked about how God's law leads to great freedom in our lives. God's law leads to great flourishing in our lives. And and we also talked about the reality that God's law is always preceded by God's amazing grace. Remember, it was God's grace that brought the people out of Israel, and then he communicated the law, calling them to obedience, and then he explains to them that in doing so, they would experience tremendous blessing in following him. And so that's really the backdrop to to all of these Ten Commandments that we're going to be studying over the course of this summer. Today, we're going to continue our series actually diving into the Ten Commandments. We're going to be looking at the first two commandments today. But before we do that, I want to highlight a story for us from the Gospels that, that illustrates this particular commandment, these two commandments that we're going to be talking about this morning. 
the commandment to have no other God before me and to not make any graven images or false images of our God. The passage I'm thinking of comes from Matthew chapter 19. It's not on the screens. I'm just going to read this for you. Interesting story. A young man comes up to Jesus, and he says to Jesus, Teacher, what good deeds must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said to this young man, Why do you ask me what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Keep the commandments. Pretty simple. And this young man says to him, Well, which ones? And Jesus says, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Essentially, Jesus starts reciting the Ten Commandments for this young man. The young man says to Jesus, all these I have kept. This was a great kid. I mean, like, if you're a parent, this is the kind of kid you want, right? I mean, this young man's like, Jesus, I've kept all these commands. What do I still lack? Maybe I'm doing a pretty good job. Is there anything I'm missing? And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. What a tragedy. Here is this young man literally in the presence of the incarnate God. God in flesh, Jesus Christ. Jesus is inviting him to come and follow me. There's one thing you lack. Go and sell all your possessions and come follow me. And the gospel tells us that this young man hung his head and he walked away sad because he had great wealth. In other words, friends, this young man had an idol in his heart a God in his life that was more important to him than Jesus. And tragically, he missed out on what would have been the greatest adventure he, had ever, he could ever imagine, life following Jesus Christ. You know, it's interesting, this, this story, this story really illustrates for us the reality of the first commandment that we're going to talk about this morning. You shall have no other gods before me. We're going to talk about this reality and the reality of idolatry and the reality how we are so quick to put other gods, false gods, but gods that we think will lead to life and fulfillment and pleasure and joy. We're so quick to chase after these other gods and then we miss out on all of the abundant life that Jesus promises us when we put him first and foremost in our hearts. Remember, Jesus said in John 10, 10, I've come that you might have life and life abundantly. How does that happen? It happens when we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. When we put Jesus on the throne of our hearts, then we experience the abundance of life that God has in store for us. But this young man missed out on these great blessings because he had great wealth. He had another God in his life that was more important. Well, this morning we're going to take a look at these first two commandments found in the Ten Commandments. And again, we're talking about these things. These are the Ten Great Freedoms. We're calling this series the Ten Great Freedoms because the reality is, as God's moral law, these commands were not given to restrict us. They were not given to hold us back from experiencing joy. No, the Ten Great Freedoms actually lead to great life and peace and joy and flourishing when we walk in them faithfully. 
And we're going to see how this works today in, light of, in, re, in the light of the first two commands. Starting in verse uh, 1 of chapter 20, remember this is still at Mount Sinai. God is revealing these words to the Israelites, directly speaking to them himself. Verse 20, and God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. First commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Second commandment, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Here we find the first two commands, the, the first two words of God to Israel. And here in the first and second commandments, we discover, number one, freedom from despair. Freedom from despair. The, the Ten Commandments here in Exodus chapter 20 begin with a preamble. And here in this preamble, the very first thing we read in verse 1 are the words, and God spoke. Now, friends, these three words are, without question, the most consequential words ever recorded in all of history. And God spoke. These are the words of our creator God to his people, Israel. These are the words of our creator God to us. And God spoke. When I go out and I do some of my speaking on apologetics, one of the things I often highlight for people is the reality that there are three questions that are the most significant questions anyone could ask. What are these three most important questions? Number one, is there a God? Number two, has he spoken? And number three, will we trust him and obey? Those are the three most important questions anybody could ask themselves. Is there a God? Has he spoken? And if so, will we trust him and obey? Here in these opening words of the Ten Commandments, God answers two of those questions for us. Yes, there is a God. He appeared to the nation of Israel, and he has spoken. He has revealed truth. He has revealed his will for us. There is a God who has spoken. The question we need to ask ourselves is simply, will we trust him and obey? That's always been the question, hasn't it? That was the question for the nation of Israel. That's the question for each of us. Will we trust him and will we obey? The preamble continues in verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Here again in these opening words of the Ten Commandments, God is reminding his people that amazing grace always precedes the law and God's call to obedience. And again, we talked about this last week. Friends, aren't you thankful that that's the pattern of the gospel? right? That it's not obey me, follow my law, and then maybe I will love you and accept you. No, it's God. I delivered you. I rescued you. I saved you out of slavery. You had nothing to do with it. It was all an act of my amazing grace. And now I'm going to reveal my will to you and ask you to follow me in obedience. And by the way, if you do so, it leads to great flourishing in your life. 
That's the biblical pattern of the gospel, friends. That's the gospel from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. It's always grace followed by obedience leading to blessing. That's the New Testament pattern as well. We looked at last week, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is a gift of God, not of yourselves, lest anyone should boast. Why did God save us? Paul says God saved us in, for good works that he prepared in advance for us to do, that we should walk in them, right? We are saved by grace through faith for the purpose of obedience, walking in faithfulness to God so that we can display his glory to the world. It's grace, it's obedience, it's blessing. And then we come to verse 3, the first of the Ten Commandments. God says to the Israelites, remember again, this is God speaking. The creator God speaking here. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. Now understand, friends, this is not a matter of rank. Okay, God is not saying here, look at there's all kinds of gods out there that you can pick and choose from, all right? but you shouldn't have any of them before me. I'm number one, and then if you want to have other gods on the side, that's fine, right? That's not what God is saying here. This is not an issue of rank. When God says you should have no other gods before me, that word in the Hebrew means besides me or in my presence or in front of me or in my face. In other words, don't even put another God in my presence whatsoever because I alone am your God. I am the one who created you. I am the only one who is worthy of your devotion. There is no other God beside me. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6, we could highlight dozens and dozens of passages in Scripture just like this one. But thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. There is no other God. There is no other God. You shall have no other gods before me. So when God shares this command with the Israelites, what he's saying here is, number one, not only should I be the one who is enthroned on your heart, in your heart, because I alone am the only true God, he's also warning his people against embracing false idols, false gods, gods that we are so quick and prone to bow down to. What is idolatry? You know, we we think of idolatry, we think of like the nation of India with their 300 million gods and all their idols and shrines, right? We think of the totem poles and we think of, you know, Japan and people who have these little shrines in their house where they pray to their ancestors. We think of idols in that form and that certainly is one form of idolatry. But idolatry is much more than just simply bowing before shrines and images and and God's fashioned by human hands. Idolatry, friends, is really anything in our lives that influences us more than our creator God. That's a definition of idolatry right there. Anything in our lives that influences us more than our creator God. And the reality is throughout human history, man has worshipped all kinds of idols. Not just carved images, but idols of the heart. In fact, John Calvin has a great quote on idolatry. He says, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. I want you to meditate on that a little bit here today. 
Your heart is a perpetual factory of idols. We are constantly churning out new gods to worship, to bow down to, to trust. You might be thinking this morning, Jason, I, I don't see it. I, I don't know that I have these idols in my life this morning. Friends, how do you identify the idols in your heart? Let me, let me give you two questions to think about as you meditate upon this reality. Number one, who or what do you most love? Who or what do you most love? In other words, where do you channel your desires? What are your passions? What, what do you most often find yourself pursuing? The answer to that question will expose the gods that you truly worship, the idols that your heart is churning out. Second question to ask yourself, who or what do you most trust? Where do I turn to for joy when I'm sorrowful? Where do I run for security in times of trouble? What do I seek out for comfort when I'm disappointed or discouraged? How you answer those questions, friends, will betray or reveal the idols that exist in your heart. And the problem with idolatry is that idolatry always leads to despair. We talk about freedom from despair. You need to understand, friends, idolatry always leads to despair. The despair of what? The despair of confliction. Do I have the right God? The despair of confusion. Am I worshiping my God correctly? The despair of performance. Am I doing enough for my God? The despair of being let down. Why doesn't my God satisfy my needs? The despair of death. Can I trust my God with what comes next? You know, it's so interesting how often we pursue all of these false gods and idols in our lives looking for peace and security and hope and joy. And so often we wind up in a place of despair. Why isn't my God meeting my needs? Maybe I'm just not doing enough. Maybe I got to just work harder and try harder. And maybe I got to perform more for my God. Or maybe I, got, maybe I just got the wrong God. Maybe I need to seek a different God. And then I'll be at peace. And then I'll find joy. And we go through this cycle, this race throughout our lives of chasing after gods and idols. When all along the one true creator God wants to give us hope and peace and joy. Probably the most obvious, one of the most obvious biblical illustrations and examples of a person who pursued all of these idols and found nothing but despair at the end was King Solomon. Remember the story of King Solomon. Here was a man who started out so well. Solomon, in the very beginning of his reign, God came to Solomon, blessing him with this offer, you know, request anything you will of me, Solomon, and I will grant that request. Solomon asked God for wisdom. And he started out as a godly king, a faithful king. But Solomon quickly began pursuing and chasing after false gods and other idols. And the whole book of Ecclesiastes is Solomon's description of his journey chasing after all of these idols. And what was Solomon's conclusion after pursuing all of these different idols? He says, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for my toil. 
Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and a striving after wind. All of Solomon's pursuits of all of the idols that he could ever desire led to nothing but despair. Friends, what's the answer to the despair of idolatry? The answer is honoring the first commandment by trusting in Jesus Christ and letting him have his rightful place on the throne of your heart. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, he says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Friends, what a different description from Solomon's end. Solomon's pursuit of idolatry ended in despair. Paul says, when we put Jesus first, it leads to great hope. It leads to great life. It leads to great peace. Friends, freedom from despair comes when we allow the law's word on idolatry to humble us so that we go running to Jesus Christ, our one and only source of hope, the God who wants to give us life and life abundant. But in the first and second commandments, we see a second thing here. In the second commandment, now we, we discover freedom from delusion. Freedom from delusion. The delusion of what? The delusion of improperly worshiping God. You see, friends, it's one thing to have the right God, but in the second commandment, we also discover that it's also important that we worship the right God rightly. Let me say that again. It's not just a matter of having the right God. It's worshiping the right God rightly. Look what we read in verses 4 and 5. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. God says don't make any images. Don't make any images of anything in the heavens, anything on the earth, anything in the sea. Now, friends, it's important that we recognize here this commandment is not a blanket prohibition against works of craftsmanship or art depicting created things. Okay? So for you artists out there, all right, don't be discouraged, right? My friends Josh and Jason Soderlin with their wood carving shop over in St. Croix Falls, when they make their awesome bear carvings and eagle carvings, they are not breaking the second commandment. My friend John Renneker up at Northwoods Roastery, he's got that big moose out front welcoming people to his coffee shop, right? Not breaking the second commandment. Pat Post, terrific artist, right outside our own sanctuary. Dozens of images of people looking up to heaven waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. Friends, that's not breaking the second commandment, having those paintings above our sanctuary. Why not? I mean, it seems pretty clear, right? God says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the water under the earth. How do we know that these aren't violations of the second commandment? Why not? 
Well, the answer to that question is because God himself ordered artistic images and craftsmanship depicting created things. When we look to scriptures, for example, we see all throughout scripture where God ordained or commissioned artistic representations of created things. For example, just a few chapters after this, Exodus chapter 25, God tells Israel to fashion two gold cherubims, two angels, to sit atop the Ark of the Covenant. Angels, things in the heavens. Just after that, he tells the Israelites in the tabernacle, the lampstands, they should be shaped like almond blossoms. What are almond blossoms? Flowers, things on the earth below. The priest's robes were to have pomegranate designs sewn into their hem. Moses, in Numbers 21, God tells Moses to fashion a bronze serpent and put it on top of a pole and lift it up, and that serpent, when the Israelites look to it, they shall be saved from the poisonous snakes that were ravaging the can. Now, that's a whole other story, but that serpent was actually prefiguring the coming of Christ who would be lifted up on the cross as our salvation. But Moses is called to fashion a bronze serpent. God tells Solomon when they're building the temple to decorate the temple with hundreds of brass pomegranates. Again, things on the earth, right? So here's the thing, friends. If none of these things are a breaking of the second commandment, and if the second commandment isn't then prohibiting works of art or craftsmanship depicting created things, what exactly is the second commandment prohibiting? Well, the answer to that is found in verse 5. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Friends, here we see that the second commandment is really a prohibition against worshiping works of art or images crafted by human hands. God says we are not to make any images or likenesses of any created thing for the purpose of worship. And this would include any representation of God himself. Now, sadly, this was a command that the Israelites quickly disobeyed. Not too long after this, in Exodus chapter 32, Moses is back up on the mountain. He's receiving the rest of the law from God. He's up there for 40 days, and the Israelites get worried. Hey, is this guy coming back? And they go to Aaron, Aaron, hey, would you make us a God that we can worship? Because we don't know if Moses is coming back, so, so can you fashion a God for us? And so Aaron has all the people of Israel hand over their gold earrings. And he takes their gold earrings and he fashions an idol of a golden calf. And he says to the Israelites, here's your God, Israel, right? The ESV translates that God's, Elohim can be translated God or God's, plural, but it's a single God, it's a calf. Why does he translate it in the plural as gods? Some commentators think that the, the uh, narrator here was parodying, par parodying the first commandment. You shall have no other gods. In other words, this is the gods that you're going to worship perpetually, Israel. This isn't just one golden calf. You're going to be worshiping these golden calves for hundreds of years to come. Here are your gods. But that golden calf that Aaron fashioned was a representation of Yahweh God. How do we know that? Because he says, tomorrow we're going to have a feast to the Lord, to Yahweh, the personal name of God. 
So here in Exodus chapter 32, what we discover is the Israelites have the right God, but they weren't worshiping him rightly. They had taken Yahweh and Yahweh's name and the God who led them out of Egypt, and they had fashioned an idol of Yahweh, the right God, but the wrong way of worshiping him. And by the way, friends, you don't need to make a physical idol of God to fall into the same error. In fact, we saw a contemporary example of this same issue just this past week as a church in Edina made national news for their use of something called the Sparkle Creed. This is a creed that they use in their worship service, a profession of faith directed to the God of the Bible, but they fashioned God into their own image, and in doing so, they've made a mockery of him. This is what the second commandment is all about. You can have the right God and not worship him rightly. And you don't need to make a golden calf to do that. Now, why is God so concerned about his creatures making images of him for the purpose of worship? Friends, it's because there is no image we could ever make that would truly capture who our God is. Think about what the Bible says about God. Revelations 22, 13, God tells us, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. The Apostle Paul, 1 Timothy chapter 6, describes God like this. He is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. The psalmist, Psalm 139, says, Lord, where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in the place of the dead, shall you are there. If I take the wings on the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. In other words, God, you are everywhere. Friends, let me ask you a question. How on earth would we ever represent that kind of a God? It'd be impossible, wouldn't it? Any representation of that kind of God ends up in God's people worshiping a lesser God. And so God says, you shall not create any images of me, anything in heaven, anything on earth, anything in the sea below. Don't even try because who I am is unfathomable. Now, this leads to an interesting question. I had a friend ask me this week, well, Jason, what about TV shows like The Chosen? Right? Representing Jesus. What about Jim Caviezel, The Passion of the Christ? What about our own missions team promoting the Jesus film and celebrating and supporting missionaries all over the world who show the Jesus film as an evangelistic tool? Is this breaking the second commandment? Friends, let me share three things on this for you. Number one, I don't think this is breaking the second commandment. Now, there are scholars who would disagree. I'm going to be honest about that. Even some well-known scholars would disagree on this one. But in my opinion, God himself took on form, human form, for the purpose of making himself known to us. And so when it comes to the humanity of Jesus, there are certain aspects of him that we can appropriately convey artistically based on our identification with his humanity. So in other words, it's okay to depict Jesus with a physical body. Why? Because we know what that is. We understand that. We can relate to that. 
It's okay to depict Jesus eating with his disciples. Jesus ate. He was in human form. He was fully God, but he took on human form. Jesus ate. It's okay to depict Jesus with a personality and even a sense of humor. I would argue all of those things are okay. We're not breaking the second commandment. However, the second thing I would say is this, a word of caution. In depicting Jesus in his humanity, we need to be careful that we are doing so reverentially and biblically. In other words, our depictions need to be consistent with Jesus' person, story, and words as revealed in Scripture. This is where, for example, Martin Scorsese got it wrong back in 1988 with his acclaimed film, The Last Temptation of Christ, a movie which depicted Jesus fantasizing about his life if he had married Mary Magdalene and showing Jesus engaged in sexual acts with Mary Magdalene. Friends, those are irreverential representations of Jesus that don't correspond in any way to the Jesus of the Bible. Secondly, second word of caution, we need to be discerning and distinguishing artistic representations of Jesus from Jesus himself, the true Jesus that we worship. In other words, friends, we need to remember, and again, for for those of you who are fans of the chosen, you need to remember this very clearly. Jonathan Rumi is an actor depicting Jesus. He is not Jesus himself, the Jesus we worship, okay? Secondly, Jonathan Rumi is a fallen, sinful human being who needs Jesus just like the rest of us need Jesus. Thirdly, Jonathan Rumi is reciting a script written by fallible human beings. He is not declaring divine revelation from God to man. And then fourthly, friends, and understand this very clearly, when you get to heaven one day, the Jesus who greets you there at the pearly gates is not going to look like Jonathan Rumi. (laughs) And if you're looking for that Jesus, (laughs) you're going to be either shocked or you might just even walk right past the real one and miss out because you're looking for the wrong guy. Friends, we need to be discerning and we need to make sure that the Jesus we worship in our hearts is the Jesus that's revealed in Scripture, not on our screens. Jesus said in John 4, 23, his worshipers, true worshipers, will worship God in spirit and in truth. What does that mean? What does it mean to worship God in spirit? It means that our heart's attitudes are in the right place. Our heart's posture is in the right place. That God alone is enthroned on the throne of our hearts. Jesus comes first. That's what it means to worship in spirit. What does it mean to worship in truth? To worship in truth means that we embrace God's revelation. We live our lives and ground our lives and root our lives in the truth revealed by the God who has spoken. It is not our place to set our own course in lives, in our lives. We are the creation. He is the creator. We trust his revelation, and then we seek to honor it by living our lives in fidelity to it. True worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. So here in these first two commandments, we're reminded that the central questions in each of our lives are these. Number one, do we have the right God? And number two, are we worshiping him rightly? 
And if we get the answers to those questions wrong, nothing else matters. We see that here at the conclusion of our passage in verses 5 through 6. God says, I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. See, friends, you need to understand this morning, honoring these commands is ultimately a choice between the flourishing that's found when living within God's will or the judgment of a holy God that falls upon all who live in rebellion against him. And what you choose makes all the difference, not only for today, but also for tomorrow and for all who come after us. Make no mistake, friends. There is great freedom to be found in honoring the first and second commandments. Chiefly, freedom from despair and freedom from delusion. When we trust in God alone and worship him rightly, that's when we discover God's steadfast love and the fullness of joy that comes from living in a relationship with him. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for your moral law that you conveyed to us here in the Ten Commandments. And Lord, we admit in humility to you here today that we are so quick and so prone to betray you. We are so quick to chase after the false idols in our lives, the gods of our own design and making. False gods that we think will lead to peace and joy and fulfillment, but lead to nothing but despair. Lord, forgive us for our, our idolatry. And Lord, may we seek to be faithful in honoring you, enthroning you in your rightful place on the throne of our hearts. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to provide forgiveness for us in our chasing after the many false gods that we are so quick to worship. For those of us here this morning who need to humble ourselves before you again, Lord, we confess our sins we ask that you would once again forgive us, cleanse us, set us back on that path that leads to life and life to the full, following you. If there's somebody here this morning who recognizes I've been living my life chasing after all kinds of idols and I know that despair that Pastor Jason talked about earlier. In fact, I know that despair very clearly right here this morning. If that's where you're at this morning, I invite you to turn your heart to the one true God, the one who made you, the God who loved you, the God who died on the cross to forgive you of your sins so that you could know life and life abundant. And if you'll turn to Jesus in faith this morning, confessing your sins and acknowledging your need for him, he will forgive you. And he will take his rightful place on the throne of your heart and you can know life and life abundant as a child of God. Lord, I pray nobody misses out on that great opportunity that's found through your amazing grace. Lord Jesus, I pray this week as we go forward into the world to live as your ambassadors that we would do so faithfully, honoring you above all, seeking to walk in your ways and experiencing the great freedom and flourishing that's found when we do. We pray this in the great name of Jesus. Amen. Friends, would you please stand for our benediction this morning? <laughs> comes from Philippians chapter 1 verse 2. And now grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen and God bless you.